This podcast is brought to you by Central, helping schools work smart. I'm Colin Klupik, and you're listening to Central Station. We hope you've been enjoying our series on cultures of thinking with Simon Brooks. And to remind you of the context, Simon is an education researcher and presenter and has a long affiliation with Harvard Graduate School of Education. This is the last of our four-part series, and in today's episode, we'll look at developing new habits of practice in our teaching and in our classrooms. This can often be a challenging process, but Simon gives us some simple and practical ideas for how to get started, including one which I particularly like the name of, and that's slow looking. Simon, let's talk about actually bringing this together and making this happen, as in actually creating a culture of thinking. We've talked a lot about the theory, but let's get down to the practical side of things. You talk about habits of practice. Is this like the seven or eight habits of highly effective people? Yeah, I think that's a really good way to understand it, except I've identified 10 habits of highly effective (laughs) teachers, though there could be many more than that. And there certainly would be more than that, but I've identified 10 as a starting point. Why do we need to make it into a habit? I think when we think about habit, we're talking about autopilot. So we're talking about a way of being. Like Deal and and Kennedy's definition of culture is it's the way we do things around here. (laughs) Wait a second. That just sounds like people who just like to enforce that very thing, as in not that it's a habit, but no, that's really just the way we do things around here. I don't want to change. You know what I mean? Like It's just embedded in how things happen. (laughs) And that's what the power is behind habitualizing ways of being. You know... Often when I work with schools, the way into cultures of thinking ideas is often through using thinking routines. And we know that thinking routines are one of those cultural forces Mm. that shape the culture of our schools and classrooms. So, for example, a thinking routine and one of my particular favorites is Connect, Extend, Challenge. Mm -hmm. I think we might have talked about this in previous podcasts, but as a quick summary, the way that Connect, Extend, Challenge works is whatever we've been learning about, Let's imagine that we're exposed to something different. So, for example, recently I saw a science teacher who'd been, uh, who'd been talking a lot about the theory of evolution. They'd been focusing predominantly on the Darwinian model of evolution. And the children have been learning at length about that. But then the teacher threw into the mix a different angle on evolution, which is something called punctuated equilibrium. Now, I'm not, okay. I'm not ex- the world's greatest scientist. Are you going to expand on that? <laughs> but in essence, punctuated equilibrium is the idea that evolution doesn't just happen in a straightforward cur- um, straight line where, when you've got time as the x-axis and adaptation as the y. That what happens in reality is for a long period of time, there's very little evolutionary change or adaptation. And then suddenly over a very short space of time, which might be 10, 20,000 years, so a short space of time, there is a significant change. And then after that, a, a very long period with very little change again. So this notion of punctuated equilibrium is very different to the traditional understanding of the Darwinian model of evolution. So an ideal time for connect, extend, challenge 
when we say to the learners, how does this new idea connect with what we've already been talking about? Like, what are the links? How does it stack up alongside it? But also, how does this new idea extend our existing understandings? Like, how does it push our understandings to new places? So it doesn't have to threaten our understanding. No, it's just like when we when we talk about extend, we're saying to them, like, did you know all of this already? Or is there anything in this new idea that you didn't understand? And then finally, challenge is what sort of questions are emerging for you about this whole topic as a whole, you know? What questions are coming up for you now about evolution? So we can run Connect, Extend, Challenge like that, like a routine. Or we can habitualize extension pressing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> run me through that. <laughs> so what I mean by that is the Thinking Routine Connect, Extend, Challenge requires them to press to find extensions and to talk about and to say this theory extends my thinking because now I'm not imagining evolution as a as a line without deviation but I'm imagining I'm imagining a punctuated line that moves in fits and starts that's a whole different way for me to think about evolution so the connect extend challenge routine wants them to say things like that but a teacher who has developed pressing for extensions as a habit of practice is regularly just going to stop as just as part of their day-to-day -day normal way of being. They're not even going to necessarily plan it, Colin, right? It's just going to happen. And they're quite often going to say, okay, so we've been looking at this new idea today, extensions. How does this constitute an extension to your thinking? In what ways is this getting you thinking differently about what we're learning now than you hadn't been thinking before? So you're asking them to be really explicit about the actual changing of their brains, the, the, the modification of their understanding. I, I suspect that in some cases, uh, depending on what topic you're actually talking about, this could have quite a, 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 an existential effect or, or, or appeal to students. Do you ever see that when you get students in this sort of an environment that they really start to challenge not just the content, but their, the nature of how they understand things in general? Potentially. It can be, it can be paradigm shifting like that particularly if what they're reflecting on is what's happened to lead me to change my idea on this. And they start reflecting on the circumstances at play that have led that to happening. So when can you start this level of thinking? I mean, that, that, that to me sounds like a fairly complex kind of stuff. I mean, obviously you wouldn't be talking about evolution in this, in the, with the detail that you were just talking about with, say, um, a U1 child. I don't know, maybe you would. I'm not a science teacher. But do you find that – the point I'm trying to make is do you find that there are levels that you can take the Connect, Extend, Challenge routine or, or mindset with at different levels? I mean, are some levels more appropriate than others? I'm a big believer – in the fact that I think thinking can be pressed for with children of nearly any age and that we're almost patronizing them to think that we can't. And I work with a lot of kindergarten teachers who think that too, that they That's don't, they wouldn't look at a routine like connect, extend challenge and say, my kindy children are incapable of doing that. They'd look at it instead and think, how am I going to get my kindy children doing that? Do you ever get some kindy teachers saying, what are you talking about? We do that kind of thing all the time, but we just don't call it Connect Extend Challenge. Absolutely. And then that's wonderful if that's happening. That's really wonderful. But then where I would be pressing them is exactly what we're talking about now. How can we move it from using a thinking routine to making thinking routine? 
<laughs> yeah, it, as in automatic, which is what you were talking about before. That's the habitualization point that I'm making, that what would it be like if a teacher develops the habit of constantly asking the children to comment on how what they're learning about represents an extension to their thinking? So that can happen nearly every lesson. We're not going to be using the Connect Extend Challenge routine as an activity, if you like, every lesson. But we are going to be pressing for that type of thinking to happen every lesson. And we're not even going to necessarily plan to do it because it's habit to ask for it. Look, this is a difficult question, but we're talking about specific habits to be developed. If you're the sort of teacher or even just person generally who doesn't have a lot of very specific habits... Is that a habit in and of itself? In other words, what alternative habits have we adopted if we haven't adopted these very sophisticated habits? I think um, it's possible to suggest that there are teachers in the world who have adopted the habit of generic praise. <laughs> Look, but, and, and by the way, sorry, before we go on, I'm not, yeah. I'm not suggesting anything, uh, uh, anything untoward about teachers who, who don't specifically demonstrate the habits that we're talking about i'm yeah. just trying to think what what is the default position so well here's we- a habit so it would and, and with all of these habits by the way i never want to sort of position myself as suggesting that i've got all of the answers and i'm perfect because particularly if my wife was here now she confirmed <laughs> i'm very far from perfect well someone might um, say actually i've got 11 habits <laughs> well this is true yeah but if we're talking about what alternative habits teachers might have adopted so one thing we talk about in cultures of thinking is that we we try to press away from generic praise and we move towards more specific and targeted praise and feedback. So, for instance, it's very easy to develop the brilliant habit. And what the brilliant habit habit looks like, and by the way, that's a particularly popular word in my country of origin. I was just going to say, that's a very British word. Tremendous, the Australian version might be awesome, perhaps. <laughs> but the brilliant habit, the way that that works is as a teacher, we might be walking around a classroom as our students are at work, and regularly punctuate the proceedings with the word brilliant. So we might look at a student's work and go, that's brilliant. You are brilliant. What a brill idea. <laughs> this is brilliant. Wow, guys, brilliant. And what we're doing is we're in the, in the habit of, of providing generic praise through the form of the word brilliant. Now, let's not demonize that either, because a little bit of a liberal sprinkling of brilliant is perhaps a powerful thing. It, it builds a positive energy. It feels supportive. But too much brilliant, if it becomes a bad habit, we might suggest, becomes meaningless. It just becomes noise. And it's too easy to say, I think. Like it's, it's too easy to look at a child's work and say, brilliant, on the run. Mm. Whereas if we stop and we take the time to form a counter habit, so that might be the habit of being specific in our feedback and praise, so that might be along the lines of saying, I really admire the way that you've been wrestling with this problem. You've thought about it this way. You've thought about it that way. You've weighed up both possibilities and you've decided on this route because of this factor. Then we're being specific in our feedback and praise. That's, that's a, a more challenging habit to develop because it, it takes a lot of time and effort to do it. But it's much more in service of developing a culture of thinking than the brilliant habit. So uh, coming back to the uh, potentially alternative habits, the, the default position, is that just a, a condition of normalization or just returning to the average? You know, in the end, all things return to the average, perhaps just the easiest way to respond. Is that what we're talking about? I think 
anything becomes habitual when we do it over and over and over again so that we don't think about it anymore and it just happens and it becomes our norm. But something that we think about in a culture, in a culture of thinking is how can we interrogate what our norms are and investigate whether, whether or not they're in service of learning. All right, well, let me ask you a really tricky one then in terms of uh, coming back to a, some kind of a default habitualization okay. or some, some kind of a default habit. What do you make, and this is a big question, we probably don't have time to talk about the full ramifications of this, but uh, what do you make of the habit of Google? The habit of Google insofar as that I'm at a dinner party, somebody asks an interesting question, and I Google it and provide the answer forthwith? Uh, yes. <laughs> I just... <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, one like that, just like that. What I think is interesting about that is that it's, I think it's a fascinating revelation about the disposition to be curious that we've talked about previously. Like it's kind of interesting to think about what curiosity is. So there was a, there was a writer called Lowenstein, a psychologist actually, who back in 1994 described curiosity as the desire to close a perceived gap in knowledge and understanding. A desire to close a perceived gap in knowledge and understanding. So in other words, we are curious when we know that there is something that we don't know. We also know that it's within our capability to work out or discover that thing. And we won't rest until we've done it. That's what it is to be curious, according to Lowenstein, yeah? Mm -hmm. So if we think about the, this um, habit of Google... Well, that's a manifestation of the desire to close a perceived gap in knowledge and understanding. We Google it because we want to find out. And it's that bit of frustration that's driving our curiosity. But that comes along with the problem, I think, because there's another theorist about um, curiosity, Susan Engel. She wrote in 2015 that the first step in putting curiosity at the center of the classroom would be to help students see that knowing things at least temporarily feels good, that not knowing things at least temporarily feels good. So let, let's just explore that for a second. When we Google something immediately, we're satisfying the urge immediately, like we're mm. scratching that itch yeah. right yeah. then. If we do that, I don't think we're working in service of children developing curiosity. What we need to do if we want to develop curiosity is try to build a culture where children revel in the, in the joy of not knowing, mm. that they string that out for longer, that that's part of the fun of being curious. So if we've got answers on tap, perhaps we close off curiosity too soon. We deprive our learners of the opportunity to be curious and to become curious. And do you think there might be some other kind of uh, social factor at work here in that, uh, you know, if someone asks a question, perhaps you're in a group situation, there's a, oh, I don't know the answer, but I could look this up really quickly and therefore look like I'm informed. That might make me feel better in front of my peers. It, it's not, not so much that I actually really want to know or need to know the answer, but I do need to look good in front of my peers. Right, it's anxiety reducing. Certainly so, could have that fa that effect. So the so the habit of Google has perhaps uh, affected us in that it, it it gives us the opportunity to be the expert on just about everything or anything that we choose at any time. And maybe I might suggest that that's a bad habit of practice for us to encourage in the classroom because it doesn't really encourage depth of understanding or learning about the thing. You just know 
a fact uh, that has been presented by someone presumably who's reliable uh, and that might just make you feel better about yourself and better about yourself in the context of other people, but only momentarily. If we allow that to happen a lot in the classroom, then the message that we're sending our learners that is that we're interested in surface knowledge rather than deep understanding. But we want to send the reverse message in a culture of thinking. We want them to va value digging deep rather than just finding the quick and easy answer. Well, let's have a look at a couple of these habits. And uh, we'll just pick out a few because uh, there are 10 on the list, but we'll have a look at a few. Listening and probing. Now, this relates to something that I was uh, asking you about previously. Listening and being heard is, for example, such an issue when it comes to things like uh, relationships, whether it's with your partner or whether it's in, uh, in families generally. A similar forces at work in learning environments. Absolutely. And I think um, we talked about what makes you say that before. But interestingly, when the research was done on what makes you say that by the Harvard team initially, um, many of the teachers that were deploying this strategy described it as the eureka question or the magic question. And they talked about how a liberal sprinkling of what makes you say that in their home life with their spouses and children resulted in richer relationships with their family. In other words, when we stop and we, and we do listen to somebody, we hear what they've said and we say what makes you say that, we're showing them that we care. I'm not surprised by that, actually. <laughs> I just had to think about that briefly, but, you know, I, I'm really not surprised. So how do we then um, – is, well, is this just an issue of creativity? Because I can imagine if I started to say to my wife, what makes you say that much more frequently? She might be thinking, why, is, why does he keep saying that? So do I need to be a little bit more creative in the way that I rephrase what makes you say that as well in the classroom? So um, would it be something like, uh, can you tell me a bit more? Or um, what did you mean by that? Is, is this the kind of thing we're getting at here? Sure. And it sort of depends what type of thinking we're pressing for. So if we, if we ask what makes you say that, we're pressing for justification. If we ask, tell me more, then we're pressing for elaboration. If I say to somebody, can you try to capture that in a nutshell? that I'm pressing for essence capturing. If I say to them, how does what you've just said connect to what we were learning about yesterday, then I'm press pressing for connection making. If I ask somebody, how do you know you're right? I'm pressing them for objectivity. So the question that we ask when we are probing, following a good bout of listening first, is dependent upon the type of thinking that we're trying to encourage our learners to engage in. I think thinking time, which is uh, also allowing, allowing for thinking time, which is one of the habits, I think follows on nicely from this because when we say, what makes you say that? Do we have to bite our tongues or you know, count to 10 or something like that before we then ask the next question? Because it might actually take that person a moment or two to think, oh my goodness, uh, that person's asking for clarification, validation, uh, which I actually hadn't really thought of. This might take me a few moments. When does it become awkward? I think it becomes awkward when we, f when we start believing that it's awkward. <laughs> but if we don't believe it's awkward, if it becomes a pattern of how things happen, they're not awkward at all, but a way of pressing for deep thinking. So some of Stahl's research, which I've alluded to before when, I was, when I've been talking with you, that was performed back in 1990, explored this idea of how we can create a culture where teachers are happy just to be silent a lot of the time. I'm okay with that. <laughs> so like Stahl's research explores this idea. What would it be like if we consciously 
practiced just occasionally at key moments stopping talking when we're in classrooms with children. And we might perform a bit of a sort of dramatic uh, expression with our face. And this is not going to work through the podcast medium, no. but I'll do it anyway. Where we go like this. When we pause and we show through our dramatic expressions that we are pondering. And often it might come when a child asks a question. So a, a child might say, hey, so what does that exactly mean? What does that line of this poem mean? And maybe we, we sort of stop. And we pull the thinking face. And we say, that's a kind of interesting question. What does anyone else think? And in that pause that we've allowed, we're sending messages to the students that this is a place of contemplation and thinking. This is not a place where we just come up with quick, off-the-cuff, ill-considered answers that we want thoughtfulness. Is it okay to come out of that situation of silence and say, I don't know, what do you think? Is it okay to say, I don't know? I think that would be a very powerful response. And what about saying, I don't know, but how about we both go away, investigate, see what answers we can come up with, come back next lesson and compare notes? <laughs> Tell me, do you think that when, when people are sitting down at a desk or standing or wherever they are looking contemplative, that it's awkward for people because observers might think that person's not doing anything? And because they're not doing anything, they're not working or they're not learning or they're not, they're not busy, they're not productive. Is there, is there a bit of that going on in our schools? Possibly. I mean, this, this speaks to the issue of what's the difference between working and learning. Do we, <laughs> do we need, I mean, if we are not doing anything, then we're not working, but we might be learning. And sometimes we can, in contrast, be very busy doing something. We can be busy at work, but not learning anything. Well, this, um, this follows on to uh, another one of these habits, which I liked, which was uh, slow looking. And I must mm. confess, the first time I looked at the page and saw slow looking, I mm. thought it said slow cooking. And I was expecting a, a, a really nice slow cooked recipe. But I quite like this one. And I'm going to quote from the handout that, you prov that you've uh, provided. It says here, I create opportunities for learners to notice more than first meets the eye and encourage them to defer explanation and interpretation so that when it comes, it is built on the foundation of detailed observation. Can you talk me through that? Yes, this comes from Shari Tishman's work from Harvard Project Zero. And I would really recommend that your listeners purchase and read her book which unsurprisingly is called Slow Looking by Shari Tishman. <laughs> I would it's, never have guessed. <laughs> it's a very slim little volume, so it's easily readable in, in a night. And it explores in depth this whole concept of slow looking and why we should encourage a culture of slow looking in our schools. One of the essential ideas behind slow looking speaks back to something we've talked about before, which is that it's an antidote to audience impressionism. It's an antidote to getting a quick view of something. Slow looking is the opposite to that. Slow looking is about taking the time to notice more than first meets the eye. Tishman talks about a lot of thinking routines that we can use to facilitate that. And one particularly powerful thinking routine that I like is called looking 10 times two. Though you can turn it, if you wish, into looking 10 times three. 
And the way that this thinking routine works is let's imagine that I, I might be an art teacher or I might be a scientist. I could be, perhaps I'm a history teacher and I've got a political cartoon that I want the children to look at. What I don't want them to do is jump to unfounded interpretation and inference. I want all of their inferential thinking to be grounded in close observation. So if I use the looking 10 times 2 thinking routine, what I do is I show them that political cartoon and I say to them, okay guys, what I want you to do is I want you to come up with a list of 10 things that you notice. 10 words or short phrases describing what you see in this cartoon. And I give them thinking time to do that. Could it be about anything, as in not necessarily the content, but the line work, the texture, the, the size of it, uh, whether it's in black and white or color, all of those, of those things? Any of those things. Any and all of those things. And they come up with their list of 10. I wait till everybody's got their list of 10. And then I say, thanks for that. And now another 10. So 10 more things that you notice when you look closely at this cartoon. And they come up with their second list of 10. And then if I'm particularly devilish that day, <laughs> then I can press it and then another list of 10. And what we find when we use this thinking routine, looking 10 times two, and we give it the time and honor it in the way that it deserves to be honored, is that as they go through the different iterations of looking, they start noticing much more detail. The first list of 10 is often quite a surface description of what they noticed. But by the time they get to the end of that third list of 10, if we're going to go there, they're noticing detail that before they probably wouldn't have picked up on. They would have rushed too quickly on to trying to talk about what they think this political cartoon means, mm. what its perspective it is that it's offering, but not notice the small details. But when we press for slow looking, what we're then doing is by the time it comes to interpretation, well... That's founded on really rich observation first. Do you find that the students tend to get quieter as they go into their next set of 10? Or do they get more frustrated and a bit more agitated? Again, depends upon the culture that you've created in the classroom. Ah, okay. If, if, you, if this is part of an ongoing culture that presses for slow looking, there won't be frustration. There'll be increased curiosity. But if it's a one-off thing that you're trying and that flies in the face of usually what happens in this classroom, mm. then, yeah, children might not even value the whole experience. But you've got to start somewhere, right? So if you've, if you've had a classroom where none of this kind of thing has ever happened before, you can't sort of jump in halfway down the track. You know, you've got to say, all right, I'm going to try this now and ooh, it's going to be awkward for a while. I've, what do you do? Do you just grin and bear it? Do you somehow suffer it and just move through? What's your take on that? I think we, we communicate to children that what we're doing is something we're valuing. Like this, this speaks back to you know, the cultural force of language to some extent. Like I, I wouldn't go into an English class and say, guys, this term we're studying Shakespeare, but I'm going to make it as fun as possible. <laughs> if I start like that, I'm creating the expectation that Shakespeare is going to be dreadful, but never mind, I'm going to try and jazz it up a bit. <laughs> yes, that's right. I'm beginning from a deficit perspective. But yeah. if I enter into the thinking routine 10 times 2 and I frame it up, something along these lines, like, guys, today we're going to be looking really closely at a complex cartoon and we're going to need to look closely at it because it's complex. It's going to yield a lot of different possible ideas. So to start with, we're really going to slow down and attend to the detail because that's important. 
You know, if we frame it up like that, then generally it's embraced. You've talked a lot about pressing, and one of these uh, one of these habits is pressing mm. for learning over work. Mm-hmm. Work is uh, a word that is often or many times used in conjunction with the word home, as in homework, uh, and homework is a, a debatable topic. Are you suggesting that uh, homework, uh, or we're seeing the sun setting on homework? What about if we set the sun on homework and then rise the sun on home learning? <laughs> okay, I can just imagine kids are going to say, no, that's just another name for the same thing. <laughs> yeah, right. Come on. <laughs> but language is powerful, right? And well, that's we, true. And we send messages through the way that we name things. I mean, the central idea, I guess, behind this notion of pressing for learning over work is that it's so easy just to get carried away with the work that we forget why we're doing it. Um, I remember years ago, I was teaching a year five class at the school I was teaching at at the time, and we'd got into a bit of coding, which is again not one of my areas of speciality. <laughs> as in, as in uh, computer coding. Absolutely, and we, we good work for an English teacher. Well, that's all right. Why not have a go, right? <laughs> Absolutely. We had something called a bee bot. We had bee bots in the classroom. Nice. And the idea of a bee bot is it's it's a little robot that's shaped as a bee. It's got bee-like stripes on it. Um, and it's programmable. You can turn it through different rotations of 90 degrees and move it backwards and forwards. So this particular activity, which like most activities I'd stolen from somebody else, um, <laughs> the, the design task for this was to have the bee drive around a circuit that the children had created, but we would put a pin on the backside of the bee, <laughs> and it was to reverse into balloons on the circuit where, which had been placed at strategic places and popped them with its pin. Ah, like the stinger on the bee, right? Absolutely, it's the stinging bee. Yeah. Now, the children were utterly alive with enjoying this experience, you know, full of the energy of what they were doing, loving it. This was fun. This was engaging. But the thing is, unless I conclude by pressing for the learning then that could just easily become work. It could become busy work. Yeah, a task. I have to make this bee pop as many balloons as possible. Yeah, but beyond that task, what's the learning? So here's an interesting challenge that, that I offer to some of your listeners. And this is, this is a habit to try again, to try to sort of develop through practice over and over again. And the habit is this. And I will say that as parents, we can try this one with our children when they're at home doing homework. <laughs> All right. And the question that we can ask them is, what are you learning by doing this? What would it be like if we asked our children that question when they're at home slaving away over their homework? Might they say, I have no idea. And why are you tormenting me with such questions? <laughs> I like not these questions. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But again, whatever activity we have our students do in class for us to regularly pause and say, what are you learning by doing this? Signals to them that we value the learning and the reflection just over the completion of the activity. That's partly what it looks like to press for learning over work. And I'm suggesting that that's one of those really nuanced habits that a cultures of thinking teacher might develop. You use the word pressing quite a lot. I'm, mm. I'm assuming that when you use that word, there's this implication that we've got a long way to go. In other words, this is not going to be a fast transition to to convince people to think about learning over work, etc. What's your take on that? 
I would conceptualize pressing more as being something that we are paying particular attention to. We are attending to it. So if I'm saying I'm going to be pressing for learning over work, I'm making it a particular priority for myself to ask, what are you learning by doing this? And in doing so, I'm putting a press on it. It's something that I'm valuing, something that I want to do more of, something that I want to extract more essence from in the same way that I might press an orange to extract its juice. I'm pressing for it. I'm valuing it. I'm prioritizing it. There's a wonderful scene in a Blackadder episode where a messenger comes in and says, my Lord, I have news. And he gives him the news and it's bad news. And uh, the other character responds by saying, I like not this news. Bring me some other news. <laughs> and so I'd like to sort of think now about a teacher who's listening to this and is thinking, I like not my habits. I need some new habits. How do I start? Well, one interesting model to think about that I sometimes talk about in the schools that I work with is Broadwell's model. And this goes back to 1969. And, the, and it's the model of the four stages of competence. Have you come across this model <laughs> no, before, Colin? No, I haven't, but it sounds very 1969. <laughs> oh, it is. It's, it's very 1969, but we're, together we're going to make it very 2019. We're going to do that right now. Let's go. <laughs> so let me talk you through this model, and it's, it's, actually, it's actually a model of human change. So I'll talk about that, and then I'll bring that back to your question afterwards. So let's, um, let's do this by using an example to help explain it. So let's talk about a, a teenager learning to drive, and let's make this even more explicit. Let's talk about a teenager learning to drive a manual car. Okay, now I'm frightened. All right, very good. <laughs> manual cars, by the way, are, are commonplace in the UK and less commonplace in Australia is one of the interesting things I've noticed. Fascinating. Don't know why that is. Isn't that interesting? That's kind of uh, as fascinating as when you said that uh, books are more common in the UK, as in book book type learning in the UK is much more common than it is in Australia. But that's an entirely different discussion. That That is. And that is something I've noticed as well. But here's the thing. So the idea of the four stages of competence is as follows. So I'm learning to drive a car and it's a manual car. The f first time I ever get into that car, I've got no idea how to work a gear stick at all. I'm in the phase of what's called unconscious incompetence. <laughs> I'm incompetent. I can't work a gear stick, right? But I don't even know it's a thing. I don't even really know of the existence of a gear stick. I've not spent enough time looking at how cars work to appreciate that the gear stick is even something that I need to be thinking about. So I'm unconsciously incompetent. I don't know how to do it, and I didn't even—I don't even really know it's something that I need to know how to do. <laughs> that person is unconsciously incompetent. They—but remember, they have the potential within them to move, of course, to the next phase of the four <laughs> phases, which is conscious incompetence. So, conscious incompetence is when I now know that I can't use the gear stick because I've seen somebody using it, and I've tried to use it, and I can't do it. So I now know that it's something I can't do. Mm. In unconscious incompetence, I couldn't do it and I didn't even know I needed to. But in conscious incompetence, I can't do it and now I know I can't. And that's kind of driving me crazy. So I'm going to work at it and work at it and work at it until I move through to conscious competence. Now, conscious competence means I can work the gear stick. I can do it now. I've learned how to do it. But I have to really focus on it. Like if I don't think about it, I can easily forget what I've learned yeah, yeah. and not do it. Yeah, make a bad gear change or something like that. Sure, yeah. 
if, if I get distracted by something I see ahead on the road or I have illegally got my phone in the pocket and it rings and I'm starting to think about what that message might be, yeah, yeah. I stop thinking about the gear change and then because I'm not focusing on it, I can't do it. So what I'm working towards is the final of the four stages, which is unconscious competence. Which is autonomy, really. Sure, right? And that means I'm doing it, but I'm not even thinking about doing it. Like, I wonder, Colin, how many times you have driven from A to B, and by the time you get to B, you can't remember any of the interim voyage. I'm frightened by how many times that's happened. <laughs> no, 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 quite. I mean, seriously, I mean, because I think sometimes I think, well, hang on a second, I really didn't give that a lot of thought. I'm sure I was concentrating the whole way. I mean, I must have been concentrating the whole way because when you think about driving in traffic, it's as the example. It's a very complex thing. You can't just kind of nod off or think about other things too much. There is a certain level of concentration that's going on. But then you don't think about the fact that it was going on, especially at the end, right? Because you're on autopilot, you've developed such a degree of unconscious competence that you can drive without even thinking about driving. So that then your journey, you can be on Bluetooth the whole way having a conversation with somebody, but at no point have you been consciously processing the acts and maneuvers required to drive safely. Fascinating. So this is what we are looking for as we develop habits of practice. So let's pick on a habit of practice, for instance. So we're going to pick on our old favorite, what makes you say that, for instance. So your question was, was around how do I, you know, I'm, I'm done with my current habits and I want some new habits. Yes, bring me some new habits. Okay, so how do I start with this? Well, the starting point is, of course, we're at the beginning. If we're asking, bring me some new habits, we're at the phase of unconscious incompetence. Well, that's right, because we've recognized that I'm not competent in that area. But I don't even particularly know at that point what habits I should adopt. <laughs> so when somebody like Simon Brooks comes along and starts talking about what makes you say that, I move into a phase of conscious incompetence. So I might be thinking, okay, now I know that, I know that what makes you say that's a thing. I know I sometimes say it but I don't say it as much as I'd like to. Mm. So I'm consciously incompetent. It's not happening, but at least I know about the fact that it could happen. So what I have to do is try and move myself to conscious competence. That means that I'm, I'm going to be able to say what makes you say that more, but I'm having to very consciously make myself do it. So as a teacher, let's be practical here for a second. Mm. Would I go so far as to put a poster up in my in my classroom with what makes you say that written on it so that I look at it and I go, whoa, I haven't asked that once yet today and it's already two o'clock. Maybe I should try it. I think a memoirs like that can be powerful. I also think that there's something powerful about the idea of accountability partners. So the notion of accountability partners is this, that maybe I really want to bump up my use of what makes you say that. And maybe I've got a colleague at school who also wants to bump up their use of what makes you say that. Or maybe they want to work on a different habit of practice. Maybe they want to think about pressing for wondering, for instance. Maybe the habit that they want to work on is asking children to surface questions more often than they do at the moment. So if I have an accountability partner, the idea of that is I meet regularly with my partner. We might predetermine times or we might make it informal. But the idea is that whenever we meet each other, we ask each other the question, hey, how are you going with your, what makes you say that? <laughs> how, oh, good, thanks. I did this the other day and this and this, and that worked really well. And uh, yeah, I've got to try to get better at this aspect of it. 
how are you going with your pressing for wondering? Oh, well, actually, I haven't done much of that this week, have I? I suppose I need to do a bit more. Would you go so far as to make a tally, as in like little, make little markings on a piece of paper and say, look, I've done it 10 times today or something like that? You could make it quantitative or you could stick in the qualitative space and just share stories about how this experience is going for you in both of your classrooms. But the idea is, is if you have that accountability partner, you're holding each other accountable to the conscious change that you're trying to develop in your classroom. And if a habit is going to become habitualized, first, we need to begin with conscious attention to that habit. So that the more we do it, the more we live in that conscious competence realm, after a while, we've done it so much and so often that we just then fuse into that unconscious competence phase where we start doing it without even realizing we're doing it. And then we've formed a productive habit in a culture of thinking. Let's say I don't have an accountability partner and I'm on my own. Where do I get help? Well, it's a sad state of affairs to start <laughs> with, isn't it? Being on <laughs> your own. Well, you know. <laughs> but I mean, I think we can be our own accountability partner in that regard. Um, and there are tons of different self-assessment tools that um, we have at our disposal that comes from Cultures of Thinking Research that enable us to identify what particular bits of practice we want to focus on. And then it's a case of holding ourselves accountable to it. But my feeling is this is always going to be better with help. Working in a team and as part of a group with support from others, there's so much value in that. And in the schools I've worked at, look, you can build a culture of thinking in your own classroom isolated the only cultures of thinking person in your school and you can do that but one when everybody is on board when everyone's playing with these ideas valuing these ideas sharing their success stories their flops and everything in between that's when we see real cultural shift simon it's been great to catch up with you uh, on your current visit to australia are you heading back to the uk soon I will be actually in a few days time. I'm heading back there, be there for a brief stint and then back in Australia again for four weeks in September, working with a lot of schools here interested in growing cultures of thinking. Well, it's such an interesting topic and maybe we can catch up with you on Skype for a uh, remote interview from Australia to the UK. Looking forward to the opportunity. Sounds great. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, Colin. Now, there's more to say about cultures of thinking than what we've been able to cover in these few episodes. And if you haven't listened to the previous three, then I recommend you do. Each of them covers a unique topic, although they are part of one longer conversation. And if you know a colleague that would benefit from these discussions with Simon, then please share them. In addition, you might like to get in touch with Simon directly if you'd like more information. And you can visit his website, simonbrookseducation.com. And for more interviews with great educators making a positive difference around the country, you can subscribe to Central Station on your favourite podcast app on the device of your choice, completely for free. This podcast is brought to you by Central, and you can visit us at central.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.